If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. <laughs> Hello, you're listening to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor. And I'm Sue Wingrove, the deputy editor. And welcome to 2010. This is our January podcast. And coming up, we've got... And the rest of the world only enters our history normally at the moment when Europe is having contact with the other parts of the world, usually when they do it. And that was British Museum director Neil McGregor on World History. Elizabeth Freak had almost 300 different recipes in her recipe collection and a wide range of different medicines within her cupboard. They did treat a very large array of different illnesses and, and ailments. That was Dr Elaine Leong on household medicines in the early 18th century. Today, he'll be an irrelevant. He'd be running a chain of bathroom superstores selling whirlpools, wet rooms, steam cabinets, power showers. And that was Robert Hume on Thomas Crapper. This podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history monthly. We'll tell you how to get hold of a copy of the magazine later on.
Now, before we go on to this month's interviews, let me just tell you a little bit about what's on our website at the moment. It's full of free historical content for anyone to look at, whether you buy the magazine or not. Uh, we've got special features to read, plus our guide to history on TV, as well as an index to back issues of the magazine, a weekly quiz, and a forum for talking history. It's all at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. And don't forget that we have more audio history on the website in the form of our Day Stripper series. That's where Julian Humphreys delves into the stories of some of Britain's historic towns. Just go to our Visit History section and click on any of the Day Tripper pieces to hear the guides. Here's a clip from his guide to Litchfield. Now, like most cities at the outbreak of the war, Litchfield's loyalties were divided. Some people supported Parliament, others supported the King, while the majority probably supported neither and hoped that the war would pass them by. In the event, though, It was the Royalists who were quickest off the mark. And one morning in late February 1643, the citizens of Litchfield woke up to find the gates of the close firmly shut and a Royalist flag flying from the cathedral's central tower. Led by the 59-year-old Earl of Chesterfield, a Royalist force of about 300 men had moved in and had even brought their families with them. News of this soon reached the headquarters of Parliament's Captain General, the Earl of Essex, and Robert Greville, second Lord Brooke, was ordered to march from his base at Warwick and capture the close. To hear more, just go to www.bbchistorymagazine.com forward slash visit forward slash Litchfield. So, this January sees the launch of a major historical initiative, with BBC Radio 4 and the British Museum jointly launching A History of the World in 100 Objects. This 100-part radio series kicks off this month, and its presenter and writer is the British Museum's director, Neil McGregor. I popped in to see him in his office at the British Museum and had a chat, so please excuse the occasional rattling of teacups. What's, what's the big idea? The big idea is that the history that we all learn at school is really no longer enough to make sense of the world that we now live in, because we all wind up with a history that's essentially Eurocentric and the rest of the world only enters our history normally at the moment when Europe establishes contact with the other parts of the world, usually by invading it. Mm. So it's a very odd way to structure a history for the world that we're now living in. And particularly, obviously, if you think about how hard it is to grasp what the world looks like if you grew up as someone Chinese or someone Mexican, um, uh, where your history will be a totally other one and the world will never seem very different. So that was the starting point. And that, of course, is very close to what the whole purpose of the BM has always been when it was set up. It was intended to put the whole world into one place that you could think about the world as having a coherent, interconnected history. Yep. And out of that came the idea that one of the ways you could actually... Uh, talk about world history in a way that was graspable. Which this is, and as you know, this is all. I mean, academically, this is all now a generation uh, stage, like we're established. I mean, most most universities have chairs of world history, and teach world history. But if you're thinking about people not now in the academic world um, or not now studying, one of the simplest ways of getting to the notion of these other histories that we need to have is using a collection like museums, where you can actually address the world from different points of view, easily through the collections of the museums. That's how it started. Mm-hmm. 
And I suppose if you go to one grand idea, it really is the trying to decenter the history from the Mediterranean. Right. Um, I mean, the, is that whole, the fact that we use that word um, and with the suggestion that that sea is in the middle of the world. I mean, that word itself tells you something very significant about what is problematic, I think, about the way we all learn history. Um, so that's, the, that's what it's about. Can I just pick you up on, on the concept of what, of what British people know about world history? Um, so you're basically saying that we don't know enough about world history, we're not taught enough about world history? Yes, I think most of I don't know about, I mean, I don't know about you, but certainly uh, at school I, I was taught very little about world history um, before the, well, the, the 17th, 18th century, anyway. Um, so very little about Chinese history, very little about the history of Iran, mm-hmm. whatever. The, it, the, and the focus of the teaching was always was very much in the British Europe, and, and very little about what civilization existed, was established, had its own view of the world before it was any contact uh, with, with, with Europeans. So that's one of the things we want to, to, to try to address. The point I was wondering about, I suppose, was um, whether there is a, a British undercurrent to the to the story. Not as no, not as such. I mean, the British undercurrent, if you like, is the fact that ultimately all these objects are wound up here. Yes, and that's because, of course, of the, the uniquely British engagement with the rest of the world compared mm. to certainly any other European country. Yeah, and um, that's been much wider and much uh, going on much longer. And the, the fact that the fact that the notion of a museum of the world is established by Parliament in Britain in the 1750s mm. is already an extraordinary British thing. Britain wants to understand the world as our world uh, in the 1750s uh, is a, is is a very that, that is a very remarkable thing. That's a British thing. Because our connection with the rest of the world has been so uh, intense, and one of the things that Mark was saying, the one of the things that sort of the stories, that the history, that objects tell, that on the whole you wouldn't get through a text-based history, mm. is that part of the story of an object is where it's been yeah. and how it's moved, yeah. and not just the reasons for which it was brought to London or was sent to London, but actually what it did once it was actually shown here and studied here, what it then meant and how it changed the way people thought and understood things. So the, the great interest, I think, of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a history constructed from things is that you always get, or frequently get, the meaning of the object, not just in the terms of the society at the time it was made, but actually when it was later collected, examined, published, or, 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 or excavated. Um, what we will be doing, um, uh, because we're constructing the, the programmes chronologically, yep. uh, is that you'll tend to get in one week, for instance, what is happening across the world at a particular moment. Now, occasionally, what's happening in Europe will be something that's happening in Britain, <laughs> but only occasionally. So there aren't actually very many British objects in the series. Who's chosen the objects? Uh, a team of the curators here. I mean, making things is really what distinguishes us from, from, from other species. And we decided that, that the limitations of, for instance, we had great debates about whether um, uh, you know, Lindo Mann yep. 
could be there. Yeah. We decided no, because you know, that's a person. Yeah. So there's no skeletons, no bog bodies. Uh, no. There is a mummy, ah, because okay. the mummy case, <laughs> the mummy is, in a way, is absolutely halfway between. The mummy has been, right. it says, made into a different kind of object yep. by human intervention. We, we decided this is about things people have made. Okay. The, the, the aim of the... The aim of the selection was to make sure that, as far as possible, this was a world history. So that meant geographical distribution is critical. Um, and as far as possible, in every week in those five programmes, you should be able to look around the globe. Yep. Can you keep spinning the globe? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there are kind of constraints of that. We, we don't have Polynesian material much before the 18th century. So and so on. I mean, there, and some things, some cultures don't leave things that survive; others do. So all those. But once you aim at that, you're then looking at objects that let you, in some sense, embody a view of society at a particular moment. And as I said, as many narrative dimensions as possible. So if you take the Lewis Chessman. Um, what's why that's particularly interesting, particularly which is the bishop from the Lewis Chessman. Right. Um, what you have is, of course, a Middle Eastern game uh, coming out of an Islamic world mm. that is taken up in Central Europe and then taken to Northern Europe. And the newest chess, of course, the first chess that we know where the bishop is present, because of that can't be in the original game. Of course. So the fact that you've got a bishop already tells you something absolutely central about European society at that moment. And if you're going to have the chessmen as a chess set as a ritualized form of societies at war, which is also raises rather general anthropological notions about war as ritualized conflict, you can't do that in that period without actually having the church as part of the fighting society. Yep. So, you've got that, that, so that kind of object becomes really very valuable because it opens all those narratives about uh, and why you wouldn't in an Islamic society uh, have actually thought of putting uh, the mosque there. Mm-hmm. No, that's not part of the, the, the state structure in that way. So you've got quite a lot to say there. The other thing, of course, about the, the thingness of these objects, because um, I think quiddity is the word we have to use at this point, isn't it? Or avoid at this point. Um, is that, of course, the, the fact that the chessmen are made of walrus ivory uh, is of course extraordinarily significant because it's that moment in Europe when, for reasons we still don't quite understand, uh, African and uh, Indian ivory stops coming through. So you've clearly got a disruption trying to find the local material to replace the missing import. Mm-hmm. And the fact that these are made almost certainly in Trondheim for a distribution network and a trading uh, set of trade routes that go from the Volga to Dublin and run across the whole of northern Europe, um, which is why they're dislocated from Trondheim to Lewis, almost certainly on the way to Ireland, mm. um, gives you another set of narratives. Um, and then, of course, the, the puzzle of what they were when they were found. So the, you see, where, you see where the, the, these are the kind of criteria we were going for all the way through. Um, an object that will let you talk about a whole society uh, and where the uh, various, in some cases where the, the thing it's made of or how it's made also tells you a great deal yep. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com 
At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That was Neil McGregor. This subject is featured in the January issue of BBC History magazine. The series starts on Radio 4 on the 18th of January. And of course, the objects discussed are all on show at the British Museum, which is in London. And now for our second interview. Historian Dr Elaine Leong is a research fellow at the University of Warwick. In the latest issue of the magazine, she looks at a household inventory from 1711, which gives a vivid picture of the medical knowledge and cures available in early modern homes. Earlier, I spoke to her about the gentlewoman Elizabeth Freak, whose comprehensive list of cures tells us so much about daily life in the 18th century. So, Elaine, in this household inventory, Elizabeth Freak decided to make a list of what she called her best things. Before we go into what was on the list, can you introduce us briefly to Elizabeth herself? What do we know about her? Actually, we know quite a lot about Elizabeth Freak, partly um, because she left two versions of her remembrances, um, which are in manuscripts in the British Library at the moment. So we know quite a bit about her life, and mainly through her own words. She was born in 1641 in Westminster, and she died in 1714. Uh, she was the daughter of a Ralph Freak and Cecily Culpepper, and um, she married her second cousin, Percy Freak. She has she had a son, um, and she also spent considerable time in Ireland, and she stayed with her mother-in-law um, in Yall and also in Rosterland, and finally her husband bought a property called Rathbury, where she also stayed for a number of years. Um, she finally settled at the end of her life in West Boney in Norfolk um, in about 1698, and then she spent the rest of her life there until she passed away in 1714. Okay, and that's where she made her inventory um, shortly before going on a trip uh, to London. Um, So here she is going around the house, listing her jewellery, her linen, her pots and pans, and uh, incredibly, no less than five locked cupboards full of medical-related supplies and equipment. Um, What sort of things did she have in those cupboards? She had a wide range of things. Um, In some of the cupboards, she actually had bottles of medicine. These were mostly syrups and waters. Um, medicines that were very time-consuming to produce but actually had a very long shelf life, so it made sense to keep them around. Um, these ranged from things cure-all such as aquamorabolus to more specific waters such as waters for the eye. In addition to having actual medicines, she also had supplies to make medicines, including a range of pots and pans and also some distillation equipment and um, a large number of empty bottles just in case she decided to make more medicines to put in her cupboards. What sort of methods did she use and what sort of things did she make up? Well, she made up a, a wide range of medicines 
in terms of types of medicines, from waters and syrups um, for range of ailments to uh, medicines such as salves and plasters, which address sort of external ailments such as bruises and cuts. Um, in terms of methods, the main method for making a lot of these medicines was actually just boiling, boiling it in a pan. Very often, uh, the producer of a medicine would first mash up the herbs um, in a pestle and mortar, and then they may steep the herbs in a liquid, either alcohol or water, um, overnight, um, and then they would boil it. Some of the medicines required some sort of distillation. Again, you would, you would start off with similar steps. First, you would mash up your herbs, and then you would steep it for a day, and then you would actually run it through the distillation equipment. And this is the main method to make liquid medicines. If you wanted to make something that was more solid, such as a salve or a plaster, um, you would also start with your herbs and spices, and then you would melt it in some sort of carrier. Um, they would use wax or animal fat. Uh, you would let it solidify again as it cools, and then it could be applied either directly onto the wound or onto a linen cloth, and then that would be placed on the wound. Okay, and what sort of illnesses would these be used to treat? And also, do we know how effective they might have been? Well, I'm afraid I can't really answer the efficacy question. I've not actually tested this out myself. I think there is an, there is an idea that once you apply a medicine um, on your body, uh, quite often these medicines had some sort of effect. Um, they may cause you to vomit or they may cause you to expel um, humors from your bodies in a different way. And in that sense, I think it provided the sufferer some sort of indication that there were changes within their body and that might help them uh, feel that their the ailments were relieved a little bit. Um, in terms of ranges of illnesses and ailments, um, Elizabeth Freak had almost 300 different recipes in her recipe collection and a wide range of different medicines within her cupboards. Um, when these two are combined, they did treat um, a, a very large array of different illnesses and, um, and ailments. They can be separated into four or five different categories. There were name diseases such as the plague, um, rickets, scurvy, ague, um, which is a type of fever, and smallpox. Um, there were a number of uh, different recipes and medicines for what we consider external ailments. So these might be for bruises, cuts, um, some of these are accidents that happen in the household. There were also um, some medicines which addressed different, um, different aspects of women's health that we find quite often in, in recipe collections and also in the medicines within her cupboards, uh, medicines that may uh, help counter miscarriage or they may help women ease childbirth, for example. The final category that these medicines might address would um, address some pain or trouble within particular internal organs. So, for example, the lungs, the kidneys. Elizabeth also suffered from weakness of the eyes at the end of her life, and she also had particular medicines to address that within her cupboards. So people tried their own remedies, and they perhaps asked advice from friends and family. But for those that did have the money available, there were, in fact, some physicians that you could call on, weren't there? Absolutely. Early modern England um, had a very bustling and thriving medical economy and there were a wide range of medical services which were on offer. Elizabeth Freak herself calls on a wide range of medical practitioners and it's the, the, the best example of this is when her husband Percy falls ill for the last time. At that point she actually calls upon surgeons, apothecaries, 
she called upon the local vicar as well as men that she described as doctors and these we assume might be university trained physicians. Elsewhere within her remembrances we know that she also employed nurses, both keepers for the sick, people to look after, for example, Percy Freak during his last illnesses and also wet and dry nurses um, when Mrs. Freak had her son. Within the medical marketplace there were also different medical practitioners one could go to, including the more colorful itinerant practitioners such as Mount Banks who went from town to town and set up a platform and sold their wares. There were also a lot of medical practitioners that specialized in particular ailments. For example, some might specialize in the French pox or um, there were also surgeons that specialized in remo removing cataracts. The sick really had a wide range of choices that they could go to. So the first port of call, though, would have been um, the householder's own medicine chest. Um, and it's obviously quite a time-consuming business to prepare these medicines. Absolutely. Um, but we also need to think that a lot of the evidence that has been left to us are of literate, well-off women. And one does assume that they were not producing these medicines on their own and that there was help. Um, I, I tend to see medicine production as a very collaborative process. We do have letters from someone like Lady Grace Mowdbury who writes a diary and leaves papers from much earlier, from the late 16th century. And she writes a letter to her servant, Bess, instructing her to bake up particular medicines. So it was a very consuming role within the household. It's a time-consuming activity, but at the same time, it is something that was done by groups of women um, within the household. You could also purchase parts of these medicines from apothecaries as well. And in that sense, I do believe that most of these householders were combining what they could make themselves also with what they were able to purchase, whereas they were being offered by the different medical practitioners. And thanks to Dr. Leong, who's a research fellow at the University of Warwick. She's currently completing a book called Treasures of Health, Medical Knowledge and Practice in the Early Modern Household. And you can read her feature in the January issue of the magazine. And now for our final interview, we've got Thomas Crapper, who is, of course, famous for inventing the flushing toilet, right? Perhaps not. Robert Hume has written a new book on this much mythologised historical figure, and he spoke to BBC History magazine features editor Rob Attar about him and his life. Could you please briefly explain who Thomas Crapper was? Well, Thomas Crapper was a pioneer. He was a great businessman who, in the middle of the 19th century, from about 1861, established some plumbing works in Chelsea and from there built a business which specialised in showrooms in which uh, you could buy lavatory pans, wash basins, heated shower rails, all sorts of things. And uh, he managed to transform people's attitudes to uh, going to the toilet inside the house, which they were very hesitant about doing and preferred to go in the privy at the bottom of the garden. What would you say was Thomas Crapper's greatest achievement? Well, I think it's left the inventions, less the sort of bits and pieces, although he did improve the flushing toilet and he did invent various gadgets such as a toilet which could be worked with a pedal and lessened the noise on toilets, less the inventions than in changing people's attitudes to being less resistant to looking at bathroom paraphernalia in shops and being willing to try it out in public showrooms. Now, the title of the article that you've written for us is called The Legend of Thomas Crapper. 
Why do you think there are so many myths that persist about him? Well, I think the biggest problem is connected with his main biographer, whose name is Wallace Rabin. In 1969, he wrote a book, a rather spoof book, called Flush with Pride, full of jokes, full of puns, and followed it up two years later with a book about a purely fictitious character, a book called Bust Up, which is about a man called Otto Titzling and the development of the bra. The two together made him a thoroughly disreputable source of information and uh, has given reason for some people to think that he perhaps didn't even exist at all. So people think because this guy was writing a spoof book that Thomas Crapp himself was made up? Yes, that he couldn't possibly have existed. Now, one of the most persistent myths about Crapper is the fact that people think he invented the flushing toilet. Now, we know from your article that that's not actually the case, but who did invent the flushing toilet? Well, I think you can probably go back to Thomas Brightfield in 1449, who in London developed a toilet that did flush water from a system. And as far as household toilets are concerned, then you need to perhaps be thinking about Sir John Harrington, who in 1596 built a flushing toilet at his house near Bath for um, his godmother Queen Elizabeth I, so many hundreds of years before Thomas Crapper lived. Perhaps the most common myth about Thomas Crapper is that the word crap came from his name. Do we know where it did come from? Well, we do know that it was being used certainly as early as 1859, if not before, because it was recorded in a dictionary of slang at that time. And it may have predated that, crap to ease oneself to evacuate. So it just is a coincidence that here we have a man who made an achievement in that area of industry who has a hugely appropriate name, but only by coincidence. Is this something that was commented on at the time when Thomas Crapper was leading the way in lavatorial developments? Were people saying this is bizarre because his name means the same thing? Well, we do think that uh, perhaps the soldiers who came across from the United States believed that uh, there was a connection, and that was you know, just uh, in the period of the First World War, but there's no other references, so we're not sure whether people did get the connection or not. Do you think we'll ever truly be able to debunk all these myths that surround Crapper? We probably won't, because I can speak until I'm blue in the face at school about this. We studied at uh, school as part of the GCSE History of Medicine course, and even when I've explained the myth, um, you get someone to say, oh, yes, they invented the toilet. Because people do tend to like simple explanations for inventions, and the fact that, after all, his name is not connected specifically, that's somewhat sort of disappointing for them, and so they sort of ignore the contrary evidence. Away from all of these myths, how do you think we should be remembering Thomas Crapper now? Well, I think... He succeeded in establishing himself as a great business entrepreneur. He had very clever advertising techniques, real shock tactics. I mean, one of the things which uh, he did very early on in his first showrooms in Chelsea, in Marlborough Road, before he went to the King's Road, was to deliberately shock people by exposing behind plate glass windows huge toilet bowls. So I thought these were very subtle, very clever tactics. The other thing which is significant about him was his attitude to his employees. They really do seem to have loved him. He seemed to be very affable, good sense of humour, bought them beer. They seem to have really been extremely loyal to him. He comes across as a very good man. 
Yes, very down-to-earth, very humble man with a twinkle in his eye. When things went wrong, they uh, were not insuperable. They were not big obstacles that were going to get in his way. And that enabled him to get on well with his employers. I mean, I think if he was around today, in a way he was ahead of his time. Today, he would be in his element. He'd, he'd be running a chain of bathroom superstores selling whirlpools, wet rooms, steam cabinets, power showers, leading the field. He'd have so many more opportunities. That was Robert Hume. His feature on Thomas Crapper appears in the January issue of BBC History magazine and his children's book, Thomas Crapper, Lavatory Legend, is on sale right now. And BBC History magazine is published each month. You can find it in all good news agents in the UK for just £3.80. Or you can save money and make sure that you never miss an issue by taking advantage of one of our great substeals, whether you're in the UK or whether you live overseas and would like the magazine sent out to you. Details are on the website, and finally, that is at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. So we're done for another month. I hope you've enjoyed this. Our February podcast will explore why you can't trust Oliver Cromwell's words, whether Richard I was really all that good at crusading, and what it was like to live in the 1930s. I hope you come back and join us for that.